is The Guardian. I was 23 years old. I was a newsreader at Triple J and I'd just finished the morning news shift and my good friend, my brother boy who worked for ATSIC at the time, rang up and said, you've got to come down to the park because the Prime Minister's coming and he's going to give a speech. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates and this is The Full Story, coming to you from Gadigal Land. More specifically, it's coming to you from a tree in Redfern Park. And 30 years ago, in this park, then Prime Minister Paul Keating was about to take the stage and address a waiting crowd and a nation. It was a really hot, sunny day. And it was a family day, so people were just running, you know, milling around, they were talking, the kids were playing. People say that they remember where they were at the time. On stage is Sol Belier. I was right there on stage with him, uh, and along with Stan Grant. Stan Grant, of course, was the MC. I was on the stage as Paul Keating stepped up to the microphone. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr Paul Keating, to officially launch the International Year of the World's Indigenous People. It is captured forever on video, but I don't need to watch it to remember its impact. Keating got up to speak, people were sort of talking with each other and not really paying attention. Ladies and gentlemen, well, I'm very pleased to be here today. Families were sitting in the sun, old people, children. They were talking amongst themselves, then something happened. And then he started to say these incredible things and the mood shifted and people went, wait, what did he just say? That the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practice discrimination and exclusion. This was the first. A Prime Minister recognising the dispossession and violence that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had survived. The Redfern Address is now viewed by some as the greatest speech in Australian political history. But 30 years later, what has happened to the vision outlined in this speech? Today, the legacy of the Redfern Address. It's Monday, the 12th of December. So, Lorena, in retrospect, I imagine you've realised that you were present for one of the most consequential political speeches in Australian history, really. What is the power of that speech, though, looking back on it 30 years later? I honestly don't think that at the time we fully understood how extraordinary this was. Lorena Allen is Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. He came to Redfern, to the heart and soul of the Aboriginal community, and he said those things to us. And he'd thought about them carefully and worded them carefully. And he spoke really straightforwardly 
the kind of words people had wanted to hear for a long, long time. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exception... Using the word we in that way was quite profound and it was the thing that really struck me the most was when we heard, when we, as in Aboriginal people, heard politicians speak about the, the collective we of Australia, we knew they didn't mean us. We weren't counted. We were so far beyond the pale that we weren't ordinary Australians. But he came to Redfern on that day and spoke on behalf of non-Indigenous Australia and said, we did these things to you and we failed to understand how we would feel if those things were done to us. And it was the first time we'd ever heard anyone in a leadership position speak in such plain language and say such truthful things to us. And so it was a really extraordinary shift in the Australian consciousness and hasn't been equaled since. I think in a way that people look back at that speech with such fondness because it it really was a point where we thought the tide was turning. I have wondered over the years about how I felt that day, what it meant to me. Paul Keating told me nothing I did not know. But there is power in words to hear these truths spoken. We mattered, that our truth was undeniable. Finally, we had a leadership that saw us, truly saw us, and understood where we had come from, understood what our struggles were and also how they might be responsible for delivering justice. You've compiled accounts of this day from people who were, were present for a piece for The Guardian, including an interview with Sol Belia, which has never been heard before. What have you learned about this moment from looking at these accounts? What we did, Laura, was we tried to talk to people who were on the stage and people who were in the crowd. So the three people on the stage with the Prime Minister were Solly Belair, Matthew Doyle and Stan Grant. Mm. So the late, great Sol Belair who died in 2017, it was a real titan of the Aboriginal community. He helped set up the Aboriginal Medical Service, the legal service. He was a founding member of the Metro Land Council. He was a deputy chair of ATSIC for some time. It was a year of the world's Indigenous people speech. And that's why I thought, yes, you know, it'll feel good. Yeah, make us feel good for the day. If not a couple of days, then, that, that, then that's it. But I gave an introductory speech before. So he, was, he introduced yeah. Paul Keating. And um, it was interesting to hear his perspective on that day. I mean, he'd, he'd seen a copy of the speech in advance. So he was very aware of the importance of it. But also he thought, well, you know, on the face of it, these are just words. Um, I think he told, he told an interviewer, Gary Highland, in 2017, it was Keating's delivery as, as what really grabbed people's attention. Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, they just knew that this man is very, very genuine. This man, as the Prime Minister and this man's government, had made a very, very fair income commitment. It was the most significant speech, Prime Minister or not, has ever made to Aboriginal people in Australia, and not just to Aboriginal people, 
but to all of Australia. And what's interesting about these events, Laura, is that there's all even 30 years later, there's new stories being told. So one thing I didn't know was that Stan has a very important souvenir of that day. I have a copy of that speech. It shows Keating's own handwriting, words crossed out, thoughts written in the margins. When I left Australia, I knew that speech could not come with me. They were words of this land. They needed to stay here, to echo here. I gave the framed copy of the speech to my friend Jeff McMullen. The two of us from opposite ends of our history, but bound to each other in spite of it all. That speech still hangs on Jeff's wall, a reminder of a day and a promise and a truth. It is our own personal covenant, I guess, that one day as a nation, we may even honour that truth. Can you describe the political atmosphere at the time of the address? What do we need to know about Paul Keating and the kind of politics of the time? From a tiny island in the Torres Strait to the highest court in the land. We just had the Mabo decision in June that year. In June 1992, the High Court brought down its decision recognising the rights of Indigenous people to their traditional lands under their traditional laws. And he was under enormous pressure from the opposition, from the resource industry, from the farmers and his own party to legislate away this native title before, you know, it was going to spell disaster for the nation. There was a lot of sort of, you know, the sky is falling kind of drama unfolding daily in the news. Like Mabo was big news every day. So he was under enormous pressure on that front. And we'd just had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. The report found major issues within the justice and judicial systems and the way Indigenous people are treated. There were 339 recommendations. So there was a lot of expectation that the government was going to deal with this horrendous statistic of 99 deaths in custody, 45 of whom had been people who were taken away from their families as children, 339 recommendations that were, were to be implemented to stop the scourge of deaths in custody. So there was he had a lot on his plate. And to come to Redfern in the midst of all of that and deliver that speech in those very plain terms that he used showed, I think, real courage and leadership. In his speech, Keating talks about the need for recognition, but surely a really powerful act of recognition would have been an apology from the Prime Minister for all of the atrocities that he he mentions in this speech. Was there disappointment at the time that he didn't apologise? I think that the... um, I mean, that that was the only disappointing thing for me on that speech. Sol Belair mentions that he thought, well, you know, it's great that he's named these atrocities. He's said that this happened to us. We're waiting for the apology. And right at the end... I was thinking, now, here comes an apology to Aboriginal people. And I actually said to Stan Grant, after after everything had finished, I said, I'm still waiting for that apology. A lot of people thought, well, you know, okay, he's named these things. Um, Surely an apology can't be too far behind. As we know, we waited 16 years for an apology to the stolen generations. 
and there's still an apology outstanding for all the other atrocities that we endured. Next, after the speech, was Keating's vision followed through? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear Miles Franklin Award winner Jennifer Down on what the state gets wrong in taking care of vulnerable children. Sometimes, you know, I think the most courageous thing you can do is literally just keep getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other. And I think, you know, that applies to survivors of all sorts of things, you know, bushfires and natural disasters and and then things like childhood sexual abuse as well. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player and listen to this episode with Jennifer Down on Thursday. As you mentioned, people were sceptical when Paul Keating got up. We've heard a lot of words from prime ministers in the past keen on reconciliation. Was that followed through after the speech? What was the rest of his term like and did it live up to this kind of vision that he was outlining in this speech? After that speech, he negotiated the native title legislation and he was sitting in a room in Parliament opposite the Aboriginal leadership of the time, negotiating this legislation. It was the first time a Prime Minister had sat in a room directly talking to people. I mean, hearing people talk about that time, he was saying to them, what do you want? And he was really blunt, like Loija O'Donoghue, who was the chair of ATSIC at the time, um, she, I remember her saying that he was really upfront. He was genuine and he said, oh, I can, I can do that, but I can't do that. I can't give you this, I can't give you that. So there were no there were no shenanigans, you know, as far as she was concerned. He was really fair. Mm. But the fact that he was sitting negotiating with the Aboriginal leadership directly, a Prime Minister doing that, was an extraordinary thing. I know there were, I mean, there were peaks and troughs in that process and there were times when he was criticised for um, capitulating to the states and capitulating to members of his own party. He would dispute that. But overall, what came out of that was a, a good, strong Native Title Act and then he also set up the Bringing Them Home Inquiry. It was called the National Inquiry into the Forced Removal of Aboriginal and Islander Children from Their Families. So another major, I mean, that was him backing up what he said about we took the children from their mothers. He set up an inquiry so that we could look into precisely that. Mm. And as we know, the core issue at the heart of the Stolen Generation continues. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are still massively overrepresented in out-of-home care. You've got more than 22,000 Aboriginal kids in care right now. Is there a sense that it was a hopeful vision but true action failed to follow? So Keating started all of these things. In, he, he got these things in train. The fact that they derailed later is not necessarily an indictment on his government. It's an indictment on successive governments and on the states and territories who are responsible for child protection legislation. I mean, we found in the Bringing Them Home inquiry that there was an absolutely unbroken link between 100 years of child removals under the protection legislation that existed around the country and the so-called racially neutral laws that existed after 1968 where child protection officers would could still remove kids for reasons of neglect or whatever, which are often very culturally loaded definitions that were policy decisions that gave a lot of leeway to those child protection agencies. So 
that is why we're in the situation we're in today with the high numbers of children being going into out-of-home care. 30 years later and Labor is back in power. Are there some parallels going on right now with the Albanese government? It is a government that is set on achieving monumental reform in Indigenous affairs. I think the similarity is that Anthony Albanese is genuine. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I mean, it was the first thing he said on election night was that he supported the Uluru Statement from the heart. And on behalf of the Australian Labor Party, I commit to the Uluru Statement from the heart. He will face very similar opposition to anything progressive in Indigenous affairs that, that his predecessors experienced. And if we have a sense of justice as well as common sense, we will forge a new partnership. Keating's speech in Redfern was interesting because he was calling on mainstream Australia to show empathy. He was calling on mainstream Australia to imagine justice. If we non-Aboriginal Australians imagined ourselves dispossessed of land we had lived on for 50,000 years and then imagined ourselves told that it had never been ours, Imagine if ours was the oldest culture in the world and we were told that it was worthless. Imagine if we had resisted this settlement, suffered and died in the defence of our land and then were told in history books that we'd given up without a fight. Imagine if non-Aboriginal Australians... Imagine what our country could be if we dealt with these issues and moved forward together. That very same call is now being made 30 years later. The same, the same ambitions are being expressed, not just by the Prime Minister, but by many, many people across the country. So we're again at a turning point that Keating described back then. Um, maybe this time, hopefully this time, we'll take the right path. That was Lorena Allen, Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. Thanks to Stan Grant for his time. Thanks also to Gary Highland, Josh Ridgway, the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council and the Belia family who provided and gave permission to use the interview with Sol Belia from 2017. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Joey Watson and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of this episode was me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay? Catch you tomorrow.